Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight on The Readout. President Trump announces he's running for re-election and Shazam. No, now we're going to pursue it. I mean, this is so it, it this is something that I think um, I mean, I, I just I, it, it's obvious that this is a sham. Shazam, fury of the Republicans as they launch an unrelenting attack on D.A. Alvin Bragg. Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee is acting as Trump's Capitol Hill legal team. Also tonight, pack your lunches. Tomorrow is Marjorie Taylor Greene's insurrection field trip to celebrate the people who trashed the Capitol, beat police officers, tried to hunt down members of Congress, and overthrow the legitimately elected government. Plus, the staggering increase in book banning across the country, targeting more than 2,500 book titles last year alone. And what's being done to fight back against right-wing censorship? Good evening, everyone. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid. And we begin tonight with a curveball in the Trump indictment watch. The Manhattan grand jury investigating the Stormy Daniels hush money scheme met today to hear a different matter. But Trump did what he always does when the walls are closing in. He posts some all caps racist and anti-Semitic bile on social media, calling Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg a, quote, Soros backed animal who just doesn't care about right or wrong, no matter how many people are hurt, adding, quote, This is no legal system. This is the Gestapo. This is Russia and China, but worse, which is weird because I thought Trump loved Russia. In addition to blowing right past dog whistling, calling a black district attorney an animal and invoking George Soros, an accusation rooted in anti-Semitism, Trump also accused Bragg of doing the work of anarchists and the devil. And in a nod to the kind of violence he's already tried to incite by telling his supporters to go out and protest. He shared a photo showing him holding a baseball bat next to a photo of District Attorney Bragg. In a clear indication that the pressure is getting to him, Trump called for the removal of all of the officials behind the many investigations raining down on him. Not just Bragg, but also New York Attorney General Letitia James, investigating his business practices in a civil case. Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis, who is overseeing a probe in his plot to overthrow the 2020 election. And Special Counsel Jack Smith, and one of the matters Smith is overseeing, the Justice Department's criminal probe of the January 6th insurrection. Trump's lawyers were in court today asking a judge to stop former Vice President Mike Pence from testifying. The day after one of the lawyers representing Trump today, Evan Corcoran, lost a bid to avoid testifying in Smith's other probe into the Mar-a-Lago classified documents. Corcoran is expected to testify as early as tomorrow, and I'm sure we can expect more temper tantrums from Trump since it's likely the Manhattan grand jury will meet on the hush money matter on Monday. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Jill Winebanks, who served as an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. She is co-host of the Sisters-in-Law and iGen podcast, Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and contributor to the L.A. Times and the best dressed man on set today. And Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Thank you all so much for joining me. I, I'm, I'm going to start with you, Maya. When I look at all these different cases that are raining down on the former twice impeached president, it always seems very obvious to me that even if, okay, today's not the day he's going to get arrested. Maybe Friday is the day he's going to go. Maybe Monday's not the day he's going to get arrested. But 
at some point, you have to realize that is one of these going to result in an actual arrest? Are they mostly just going to be fines? I can't imagine uh, b- between between the, the, the civil case and the criminal case and the federal treason cases, one of these doesn't result in him in an orange jumpsuit. Well, let's be technical about this. Uh, first of all, it's very hard to imagine there is not an indictment somewhere at some point against Donald Trump. I say indictment because, as we know, there's plenty of public evidence uh, that shows that there's some real cause to think he is going to be indicted to something. Mar-a-Lago being the latest, because when your lawyer is now said, uh-uh, no attorney-client privilege because we think there is a crime-fraud exception. That's, in plain English speak, that means, no, baby, you've got a problem, and we think your lawyer has evidence of you potentially committing a crime. And you have a judge saying that. You have an appeals court saying yes, and actually rushing that to happen. So I just want to say that, that it's very hard to imagine. And, and, and these mean two things. So indictment, just want to separate these. Indictment means he's going to face a jury. Okay. Whether he's arrested for it is a little bit different because there would have to be a decision about whether he should be held versus whether he could be free on his own recognizance until that trial. So I just want to separate that out. Um, but we know orange matches. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of that. Uh, Jill, you know, I wanted to ask you this because, to me, one of the other concerns that I have, whenever we hear about, again, all these trials, all these investigations, whenever there's a delay, right, I and many Americans out there start getting concerned that nothing's going to happen, right? Like, I, I never believed, I, I don't know why we gave Trump that much attention. I mean, he thinks he's going to get arrested on Tuesday. No one's going to do it on Tuesday because that's the day he said. But here we are two days later. The, 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 the grand jury's met, but they didn't meet about doing something about Trump. Could that suggest that we could be days away from this indictment coming on? Or could this just be another routine matter and, and we're still looking at something within the next couple of days? We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We don't actually even know if this was a delay. Only Donald Trump said he was going to be arrested. And I agree with Maya, there is not going to be an arrest as people think of arrest, which is him being handcuffed and perp walked. He will self-surrender, but that's a separate separate issue. So we don't know what the time schedule that the DA Bragg had set. DA Bragg is going on his own timetable. He's not going on any timetable that Donald Trump says to rile up his base. And with a Saturday Waco rally, that's what we should be worried about, even more than the protest that could happen whenever there is an indictment, whenever he has to come in and surrender and be fingerprinted and have a mugshot and DNA swab. Those will happen. I just don't see him being arrested. Much as I would love to hear the law and order music when that happens, yes, we probably will be denied that opportunity. Um, Kurt, here's the thing that gets me. So while all these things are raining down on Trump, and, and, I, and I, it, 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 it cannot be said enough, 99% of this is his fault. Like, I don't know, if you don't steal documents from the federal government, this doesn't happen. If you don't pay off you know, adult film stars, then maybe this doesn't happen. If you don't try and overthrow the country, maybe you're not you know, a redneck, or however it is the old joke goes. But you know, these are things that Trump has caused on his own. But what's been fascinating to me is the same Republicans who were screaming, lock her up, 
and talking about the Clinton Foundation, talking about Hillary Clinton, are out there crying and complaining now. Let's play some sound from Lindsey Graham begging, begging for Trump's freedom. And we'll get your thoughts on the other side. I'm begging and urging this prosecutor, don't do this to the country. Don't jeopardize the rule of law for the nation as a whole. There's a better way to do this. We'll have an election about Trump. To prosecute President Trump in light of everything you've just said uh, would be weaponization of the legal system. It would set a bad precedent in the country. It would come back to haunt us for decades. And uh, I hope and pray they do not do this in New York. Now, the weaponization of the legal system, Maya, correct me, you're the lawyer here. I believe that's called the Bill Barr method, uh, where you turn, <laughs> you turn the whole legal system into your personal, uh, your personal use. But, Kurt, what do you think about it? I mean, you know, look, they're going to defend Trump no matter what. Right. But to hear that sort of thing from Lindsey Graham just seems ridiculous to me. Well, it's just downright unsportsmanlike when, when people that are in justice prosecute criminals. Uh, wow. What, what is wrong with the world the that something like that would happen? I mean, yeah, Lindsey Graham has shown over many years now that this is a guy who just has no self-respect at all. And mm-hmm. he's willing to deface himself on national television to defend someone that we all know he can't stand. Uh, if you go back and look at the things that he said about Donald Trump back in the 2016 campaign. I mean, that's the thing about all of these Republicans, from Kevin McCarthy to the folks over on the propaganda networks to Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, every single one of them is is on the record at some point or another saying they hate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here they are expecting all of us to believe that they really care about Donald Trump's freedom. Nobody is rooting for Donald Trump to go to jail more than these Republicans, I guarantee you, they are secretly hoping that the justice system does the dirty work for them so that they don't ever have to actually take a stand against their leader. And it's just crazy politics. I mean, think about this. These are people right now who box themselves into a corner, which they have to defend someone who will likely be charged with multiple crimes from paying off porn stars to subverting democracy to trying to overthrow an election. And the so-called party of law and order would have us believe that these are all things that they should be defending. It just doesn't add up and it's terrible politics. Uh, And they're going to add on top of that, as you put it, a field trip to go check out some insurrectionists? Like, what, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Jill, this is the other thing. And, and I, I, I find what Kurt said is very key about this. Let's say Donald Trump does get arrested, right? Let, let's say he actually does go to jail, um, you know, maybe for January 6th, maybe for the documents. What kind of jail time would he be looking at? I mean, like, I, I, I know that it's it's unprecedented to have a president in this situation. I doubt he's going to go in for six months and be doing, you know, upside down sit ups like 50 and come out and prepare to run. We know that's not going to happen. But what kind of real jail time could Donald Trump face either for the insurrection or for attempting to overthrow the 2020 election in Georgia? Assuming that he would get any jail time, given that he is the former president, and many people believe that with the Secret Service guarding him, he could be in home confinement. Um, but if you were to be sentenced to jail time, he would be sentenced according to whatever the laws are that he is guilty of. Some of them carry five-year penalties. Some of them carry four-year penalties. Some of the state ones are you know, misdemeanors, possibly in New York. It could be up to a four-year felony. So it's very hard to predict. Now, you could also have him serving consecutive sentences. He has, let's face it, we're all looking right now at the Manhattan DA's case, which 
at most is maybe going to be a four-year felony. Possibly it's less. But you have Georgia, and there are multiple counts there. Right. You also have the Mar-a-Lago case. You also have the January 6th insurrection case. Um, you also have a rape case in New York, the Eugene Carroll case. Yes. And you have a lot of civil cases that could bankrupt him completely. Uh, so there's a lot facing him. And I don't know. It's I really can't predict uh, whether it would be done consecutively or concurrently. And one would hope it would be consecutive because these are very different crimes. And some of them go back to before he was even president. And we keep talking about, you know, how important is the DA Bragg case? And I think Lawrence um, O'Donnell had the best answer for that, which is, had he not gotten away with that crime, if he hadn't committed that crime, he wouldn't have been president. And we could have all been spared everything else that has followed. That makes it maybe one of the most important of the crimes he's committed. So, Maya, to think that we were basically <laughs> hush money from an adult film star away uh, from four of the worst years of my life and, and most of the world's life politically, it does sort of add weight to a case that otherwise a lot of people would say, oh, well, this is sort of the least important of all of them. When we look at these cases across the board, historically, right, treason obviously is something that's historic, unprecedented, et cetera, et cetera. But if we look at it on sort of a practical level, which of these cases also might result perhaps in changes in legislation? I, I look at what's happening in Georgia, and I think that if, if it hasn't happened already, this investigation alone should lead either to state or new federal policy, where it's like, hey, look, if we have any loopholes here, we're, we're going to pass a law now. You make that phone call automatic felony, or you, you, you make these suggestions, automatic felony, which of these is likely to actually result in some change at maybe a policy level or a structural level in our government, regardless of how the trials turn out? Well, I, I think that's a very hard question to answer, and I'll tell you why. Not because we couldn't look at this and say, here are the laws we have to make clearer so that nobody can argue right. that they went around it, but uh, one is what Kurt points to, which is for all of the arguments about caring about the rule of law and please don't bust it up by going after somebody who may have broken it. And, by the way, watching what's happening in Georgia where lawmakers are looking at trying to carve back what a prosecutor can do because of Donald Trump, which is not a pro-rule of law position to take, um, it's not clear that there is actually any interest in lawmaking, let alone, but using it as a political tool to just protect Donald Trump. And I think that's why it's not only hypocritical, it's actually dangerous for democracy. Because one thing, one thing I will tell you as a New Yorker, one thing I will tell you as a black woman, one thing I will tell you as someone who cares about the rule of law and racial justice and civil rights is in Manhattan, in New York City, over 180,000 people have been, just in two years, 2019, 2020, arrested wow. on misdemeanors <laughs> and for things like selling churros in the subway system, things that did not endanger anyone, right. things that did not endanger our democracy in the slightest, and often people just trying to make a way for themselves and their families. And the majority, like half those people are black. Yeah. And only 12% result 
in an actual conviction. But do we hear anybody running around saying, oh, these prosecutors, here's a problem for the rule of laws that right. all these people, all these people are facing criminal charges for nothing. Now we have a man in power who has power, who has wealth, and has corrupted the system and endangered our democracy. But now we want to attack Alvin Brad for being a prosecutor? Come on. Yeah, and it's like, this is the thing, too. It's <laughs> this Republican Party who has allowed George Santos to stay in Congress. Yes, exactly. Who exactly. doesn't want to even talk about uh, Jim Jordan's scrutiny about what happened when he was, uh, you know, in, the in Ohio. The blindest coach, the blindest uh, wrestling coach in Ohio. We just had this information. James Comer, in an interview, admits that, that he's been part of some shady things during his time. And it's like, this is a massive criminal enterprise that's masquerading as a political party. They're all about the rule of law when it's people who look like us that's on the other end of it. Right. But you put a white, rich person of power and privilege under scrutiny, and all of a sudden, the justice system is unfair. Yes. We need to look at the power of prosecutors. This is too much. Like, come on. Exactly what she just said. It's nonsense. I got to say this, though. Um, those subway churros are very dangerous, and we need to do something about them. They can't be used uh, as a weapon. <laughs> can't be used as a weapon. Jill Weinbiggs, Kurt Bardella, and Maya Wiley, thank you so much for starting us off today on The Readout. Up next, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee apparently think they're on Trump's legal team. But now it is actual attorneys in the Manhattan DA's office telling them to mind their own damn business. The Readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Since retaking the House majority, Republicans have made it clear that their priorities are almost exclusively consisting of investigating the Biden administration, yelling about wokeness and gas stoves. But this week, they're taking it one step further by basically trying to turn the Judiciary Committee into part of Donald Trump's own personal legal team. We call it the Bill Barr method. Overnight, Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan requested testimony from two former prosecutors who were previously involved in the investigation into the alleged hush money payments from Donald Trump to Stormy Daniels. Comes after Jordan, along with two other Republican committee chairs, sent a letter to District Attorney Alvin Bragg himself earlier this week demanding that he testify about his investigation. Well, the Manhattan DA's office was not trying to hear that responding to those requests, calling it a, quote, unprecedented inquiry into a pending local prosecution, which only came after Trump created a false expectation that he will be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged you to intervene. 
In New York speak, that's forget about it. The New York Times is also reporting that Bragg's office told a Jordan aide on a phone call related to potential subpoenas, quote, your committee has no jurisdiction over us. You're wrong. Stop calling us with this BS. NBC News has not confirmed that reporting. But I'm pretty sure it was close. Joining me now is David Jolly, former Republican congressman from Florida and an MSNBC political analyst, one of my favorite people to talk to. Um, (laughs) David, I'll, I'll start with this. Because all of this has to do with sort of Republicans in general, sort of uh, suborning the rule of law, ignoring the rule of law. I have to start with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, for America, I believe there's a GoFundMe where you can send her Lunchables and orange slices for her field trip tomorrow uh, to visit insurrectionists who are in jail. And as much as I have checked the Internet, I haven't seen any brilliant searing letters from a Birmingham jail from people who tried to take over this country. But. From a symbolic standpoint, what, what are your thoughts on this? What is the value and purpose of a sitting member of Congress going and visiting people who were actively trying to overthrow the country? And how concerned should we be about the fact that she's making this trip? Well, look, I, I would promise I cannot get inside the head of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think what the nation should take from this is that the Republican Party and its leadership supports insurrectionists, is sympathetic to the events of January 6th, and would like all of us to believe that trying to topple democracy two years ago was actually just par for the course in today's America. And so call them sympathizers or supporters of the insurrectionists. It is clear where the priorities of Marjorie Taylor Greene align. And I do think, though, you know, what why would you do this, right? You would do it because there is a political and electoral reward, which then goes to where today's Republican Party is. I think supporting insurrectionists and supporting a false narrative around January 6th is now baked into the doctrine of the party. And you can see it in Kevin McCarthy. It was just a few weeks ago, we were probably analyzing McCarthy as having made a deal with the insurrectionist caucus in the House or being a sympathizer to the Greens, the Gates and the Boberts. He's fully part of them. And we've got to get past this chapter where McCarthy was just making a deal and now realize he's one of them. He is the leader of the party. And Kevin McCarthy himself is pro-insurrectionist. Right. Like I said, the Republicans are now a dime storefront for a terrorist organization called MAGA. There is no separating the two. Uh, And the few individuals, most of whom I wouldn't necessarily even agree with ideologically, who stood up against insurrection itself have all been kicked out of the party. Uh, Speaking of Kevin McCarthy, who, again, just a couple months ago, we were saying might be one of the weakest speakers uh, that we've seen in recent history. uh, He had a meeting with Ashley Babbitt's mother today who said that her conversation with the speaker was delightful. The meeting between Babbitt's mother and the Republican House speaker took place a day before several Republican members of Congress planned to visit the D.C. jail where a limited number of charged Capitol rioters who have been deemed a danger to the community or who have refused to obey conditions of release are being held. Here's the thing. Uh, and, and, and David, this is the other question that gets me. Um, Ashley Babbitt died trying to take over this country. That, that's the truth. It, she that's she right. died trying to break into Congress with a lot of other people who wanted to kill members of Congress. She died because the people that our tax money pays for to defend our representatives saw her as an immediate threat and danger. We know Marjorie Taylor Greene is nothing but a clown and an insurrectionist. We know that Kevin McCarthy has sold what semblance of his soul might have been left on a small cracker cookie to these people in order to stay in power. But to visit the mother of someone who the hard right wants to consider to be a martyr How does that differ in sort of symbolic and danger, especially given he's Speaker of the House from just Marjorie Taylor Greene's silly little field trip? Yeah, you're exactly right. Ashley uh, 
Babbitt lost her life trying to penetrate the House of Representatives and police acted within their uh, due course to prevent that. Her mother is a grieving mother. We can give her some license. But when it comes to Kevin McCarthy, understand what Republicans are doing to the mother of Ashley Babbitt, as well as other insurrectionists. They are providing an audience that they did not provide to the parents of Parkland victims. Think about that. In terms of how that looks for the priorities of today's Republican Party, they are meeting with with empathizers and sympathizers of the insurrection, but they refuse to actually meet with family members of actual gun violence in the United States. And this is where, again, I, I really think we have to leap past giving Kevin McCarthy this notion that he's just weak. He is absolutely weak. But he is substantively with the insurrectionists now. And so we can evaluate him as a weak speaker, but we also get to evaluate his moral judgment in these matters. And what it shows is he's putting insurrectionists before the country. No question about it. You know, uh, unarmed black folk get shot in their homes by cops uh, playing video games. They get shot playing with squirt guns outside. I don't see members of Congress running to their aid, running to talk to the mothers of the movement uh, who suffered innumerable losses and their children weren't trying to break in and murder everybody in the Capitol. Um, you know, David, the other thing that, that goes with this is we're, we're taking a look now at these tweets from the Judiciary Committee. And the Judiciary Committee, which is now run by Republicans, are tweeting away saying Michael Cohen lied again and again and again, and he went to jail for it. But don't worry. Democrats say you can trust him now. Alvin Bragg should focus on prosecuting national criminals in New York City. The Manhattan DA's case against President Trump is relying in part on matters stemming from the Mueller investigation. Democrats will never get that up. Look, I've seen a Twitter handle occasionally become unhinged. It's happened more and more uh, <laughs> since Elon Musk took over. But I, I can't remember the last time that I saw a, a, a federal government congressional committee Twitter handle be turned yeah. into basically a slam book. Now, historically, we all know, assuming the history is written by the right people, that they'll be looked back poorly on this. But I also think, is it possible that when you're making these kinds of tweets from the committee Twitter handle, this could be part of an investigation down the road? If there are oh. any questions about your partisanship or your ethics, this could be evidence. Absolutely. First of all, it reflects the House is no longer a serious institution under Republican control. The committee right. is not a serious committee under Jim Jordan's chairmanship. But it, this is absolutely part of their interference with an active criminal investigation and prosecutorial grand jury decision. We learned from The New York Times that it was a month ago that Trump's attorneys asked Jim Jordan, please interfere in the Alvin Bragg matter. And now we're seeing that Jim Jordan and Comer and others, under the blessing of Kevin McCarthy, said, OK, Mr. President, we're going to interfere. Which begs the question, what else has Trump asked them to do to interfere in his prosecution around events? This is raw political uh, invest or political interference. And look, when we look at the decision of Bragg to perhaps delay some of these decisions, right. we take it as though just routine that maybe there are other matters. One of the things he has to deal with is this this matter. This interference, it takes time for an office to parse through this type of interference to make sure they're getting their, their matters exactly right before the grand jury, if they are indeed to move forward. From a purely political standpoint, I've often said that when Republicans are engaged in this kind of behavior, Democrats should sit back and let them engage in a, a circular firing squad. But I do think there's a danger that if all the conversation over the last week and a half has been what Republicans think, what Republicans want to do, yeah. how they're trying to defend Trump, they end up controlling the narrative. What would you suggest that the Democratic yeah. Party leadership be doing right now while we're having these conversations? It's a great question. 
don't first and foremost, do not interfere in Bragg's prosecutorial decision. He may or may not put this before the grand jury. And who knows what the grand jury will do. That's why you're seeing the White House not opine on it. House Democrats don't need to opine on the subject matter. What they do is laser focus on the Republican malfeasance and and their abdication of the actual integrity and responsibility of the House of Representatives. Nail them to the wall on that. And I would suggest this comes to outside groups as well. Because the White House is doing the right thing. They're focusing on doing the work of the American people. House Democrats are as well. But there must be scrutiny and consequences for what House Republicans are doing under Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, James Comer, and all the other circus participants we get to witness on a daily basis. David Jolly, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Thank you. Still ahead, book banning efforts have reached a fever pitch across the United States. But now they're coming up against an increasingly organized resistance. More on that after the break. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Banning materials that represent our history is going to give our students a misguided interpretation of why the world is like it is today. Librarians like the one you just heard are now under siege in America. Librarians, not the cool ones on the TNT series, like the people who give you books. Caught at the center of bitter culture wars and having to explain why reading is important has now become a part of their job. They also have fresh data showing exactly what we're up against with these attacks on librarians. The American Library Association, known as the ALA, says book challenges surged to record numbers in 2022. There were 1,200 demands to censor library books and resources last year, the highest number of attempted book bans since the ALA began compiling this type of data more than 20 years ago. The number also is nearly double the 729 challenges reported in 2021. It's another disturbing trend here. Prior to 2021, the vast majority of challenges to libraries only sought to remove or restrict access to a single book. But now the book banners are targeting multiple titles. Of the book's challenge, 40% were in cases involving 100 or more books. The vast majority of the targeted books were written by or about the LGBTQ community and people of color. Surprise, surprise. Those books include Gender Queer by Michael Bobby's graphic novel about coming out as non-binary and Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, one of the most prominent literary works ever on the lived experience of black girls and women. Joining me now is Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about this issue. 
I'm a college professor at Morgan State University. Yes. I often talk to my students about what their access was to books in high school prior to coming to a university library. Just from a purely educational standpoint, how dangerous is it that we're seeing these sort of organized attacks on books and libraries in and out of schools throughout the country? It's very dangerous. We know that these attacks are narrowing educational opportunities, denying young people the ability to look into new different lives, different experiences, understand others, understand themselves. And by taking away books that reflect their lived experience as persons of color, um, as LGBTQ persons, they are being denied the opportunity to see themselves in the shelf of the library shelf. But worst, we know from the research that not having access to diverse books actually results in poor educational outcomes. We've looked at this research. We actually have a white paper available on our website at uniteagainstgoodbookbans.org that demonstrates that access to diverse materials, to the lives and uh, experiences of people of all sorts, is very important for improved educational outcomes and, and, more importantly, improved student health. We know this. We hear from students at hearings where there are demands to remove books, and students actually cry when they talk about finding books like Gender Queer on the shelf that reflect their lives, that tell them that it's okay, that there is some place after high school, after college, where they can find uh, success in life and have a successful career, successful relationships. And when we take these books away, it's just devastating to the young people. One of the things that I've also noticed about these attacks on libraries, and this is the part that, that infuriates me uh, because it's, it's so pernicious and so dangerous, is they're not necessarily even coming from parents in the school districts anymore, right? It's national organizations weaponizing their access and saying, yeah, we may not have anybody who's in this county in this school district in Florida or Illinois or Missouri, but we've just decided to scan your local library and file a protest. What's, what's the significance of that? It's not even really coming from parents anymore. It's just reflective uh, of what we're seeing in the numbers this year is that it's no longer a conversation between an educator and a librarian and a parent about a book the parent has concerns about. We're seeing organized political attacks on our libraries and on our school libraries intending to limit books to what is politically approved, morally approved, that fits the narrow agenda of the groups that are bringing these challenges. And, you know, make no mistake about it, they've got lists of bad books. You can go to social media, you can go to their websites, and what you find is lists of disapproved books. And who do we find on those lists? Ibram Kendi, uh, Toni Morrison. We find uh, uh, Maya Kobabi's books, you know, uh, books that speak to the experience of gay teens, like This Book is Gay by Juno Dawson. Um, and they, have, you know, that's what we'll see. We see kind of rip-and-read behavior. Someone will show up at the board meeting with a list of books they haven't read, haven't seen, haven't put in context, and demand their removal because they don't fit someone's agenda about being gay, being black, um, whatever. Or anything. Anything, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's bring in Jelani Cobb, dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism and staff writer for The New Yorker. Jelani, there's another key thing about this that I'm really excited to talk to you about. So later on in April... Uh, you are putting on a conference at School of Journalism about sort of democratizing the press. When I hear about book bannings, right, when I hear that people are going into the local library and saying, hey, I don't want kids to have access to Tony Morrison. I don't like this book by Roberto Clemente. 
I think the press is next. What's to keep those people from saying, hey, those old issues of Ebony magazine and Jet are a problem. Those old issues of Glamour talk about issues we don't like. What's the danger of these attack on books to our overall press and, and what that could mean for what young people even into college have access to? Well, uh, the, these are straight down the middle First Amendment issues. Uh, and, you know, it's like a contagion that makes a leap from uh, from one carrier to the next. You know, we're seeing this on books uh, and, you know, it, it's easy to make that leap over to this as a repression of uh, of media and the press, uh, which I should say is already happening. You know, we've been seeing uh, for the past five or six years now, uh, you know, higher levels of attacks. Uh, on on the press and you know seeing ourselves downgraded on the indexes of press freedom uh, you know around the world and so uh, you know these are deeply deeply disturbing uh, trends that harken back to some of the worst and darkest times in American history. And, and part of what concerns me about this is there's a lot of books out there uh, that are full of fratricide and incest mm-hmm. and violence that people find to be helpful, like the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> stories like that. And Absolutely. it's kind of important that people have access to that in America. Um, one of the other things, and, and again, as an educator, I wanted to bring to your attention, there's this terrible story out of Tallahassee where a principal was ousted over Michelangelo's David in an art lesson because it was deemed pornographic. Again, as an educator, this is, this is a, a historic piece of artwork. If somebody has a problem with it, it's okay to pull your kid out of the class. But what is it saying about the lack of respect for education now that you can't just say, hey, I don't want my kid or I don't think kids should see Michelangelo, but they're now ousting administrators over these kinds of ridiculous charges? So listen, you, we've seen these kind of challenges before. You know, we've seen you know the kind of even kind of the Department of Justice. You remember years ago when they they draped the robe um, over a figure, um, a statue that yeah. they thought was too revealing. Uh, and so you know, there's that kind of parochial view of the world that's been prevalent in American politics for a really long time. What we've seen now is an unprecedented level of of pandering. Uh, and indeed, even uh, amplifying and magnifying uh, those kinds of sentiments. Uh, and so uh, this doesn't lead anywhere good. Uh, and it, it is also, I should say, part of a bigger trend of seeing education fundamentally as anti-conservative. And that's what the, the opposition is. Absolutely. Deborah, what is the ALA doing against this? Is I mean, are you guys simply suing? Are you doing protests? Because I'm looking at some of these banned books, you know, of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. I didn't like reading it, but I learned something when I was in school. Banning Harry Potter. I, I don't understand why anyone would be upset about that. What is the ALA doing to fight back against this right wing push? Well, first of all, you know, librarians have been traditionally on the front lines right. of defending the freedom to read and, you know, doing the thing that they do on a daily basis best. You know, librarians are all about making sure you have access to broadband when you can't afford it, supporting small businesses, supporting homeschooling parents. Um, Who's there when uh, there's a disaster? It's the libraries that open up and provide connections to FEMA and and all the information that people need to get out of that. Um, But uh, what ALA is doing is we provide direct support to librarians who are addressing challenges in their libraries. We support communities. Um, but there is an initiative. Uh, it really depends on all of us. It really depends, frankly, on every individual in the community, on you, uh, to stand up because libraries are local, schools are local, and this all happens at 
board meetings. We need to uh, show up at these meetings. We need to know who we're voting for in local elections. We're now seeing school boards and library boards taken over by those with a censorship agenda. And we're seeing the results of that in places like Florida and Texas, where the books are being removed wholesale from school libraries. Uh, but we encourage everyone to go to a platform called uniteagainstbookbans.org. And that's unite with a, not <laughs> united. We are united, but it's unite against book bans. And there are tools there for us as individuals to get involved in the local political process, to know who we're voting for, to understand the issues, to be able to stand up and speak out against censorship at their local board meetings, and to let elected officials know that they won't tolerate the government telling them what to think or do, or letting other parents impose their will on their own child's education, that that choice belongs to us alone, and that it's the job of librarians and educators to make a, a wide variety of information, diverse information, diverse stories available, and let everyone make their own choices about education. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Deborah Caldwell-Stone and Jelani Cobb, thank you guys for joining us tonight thank on you. The Readout. Still ahead, TikTok showdown. TikTok CEO testifies on Capitol Hill in a bid to stave off a possible nationwide ban. We'll be right back on The Readout. This is more governing through fear-mongering without actual evidence. Let's talk about all social media companies, what the harms are, and then write federal legislation to deal with those issues instead of scapegoating TikTok. 150 million Americans are on TikTok. They use it for entertainment, they use it for education, they use it to be a part of a community, not for nefarious reasons. That was New York Congressman Jamal Bowman defending TikTok today as his colleagues on both sides of the aisle grilled the CEO of the highly popular social media app that's owned by a Chinese parent company over security and privacy. Bowman appears to stand mostly alone on Capitol Hill with members of Congress and the administration considering banning the app. A move speaker, Kevin McCarthy, came out in support of today. That's a clear sign that it's wrong. NBC's Savannah Sellers has the latest. We will protect the U.S. user data. And TikTok's top executive under fire for over five hours today. TikTok poses as a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, but it acts like Big Brother. The hugely popular app known for short videos like this in the spotlight today for this. What's your relationship is with the Communist Party? CEO Sho Chu answering questions about whether the app owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company, is a national security threat given a Chinese law that could allow the government to access user data. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I've I, asked find that that, I find that actually preposterous. I have uh, looked in. I have seen no evidence of this happening. TikTok has 150 million users in the U.S. and a billion worldwide, many of them teenagers. The White House has given the company an ultimatum, sell the company or face a ban in the U.S., as the Justice Department and FBI investigate whether ByteDance illegally surveilled journalists. Has ByteDance spied on American citizens? I don't think the spying is the right way to describe it. Another concern from both sides of the aisle, misinformation. The dangerous misinformation that you mentioned is not allowed on our platform. It violates them. I'm sorry to report it is on your platform, though. Uh, uh, Congresswoman, I, I don't think I can sit here and say that we are perfect in doing this. We do work very hard. 
Chu says TikTok's top priorities are protecting user safety, especially for teenagers, securing U.S. data, and being a place for free expression. Despite the company's reassurances, 43 states have already banned, restricted, or are considering to ban TikTok on government devices. So much of the community I've created is is on TikTok. That's what I've devoted my life to working and creating for. Duncan Joseph makes a living creating TikTok videos for his 4.5 million followers. Do you think that the lawmakers who are asking the questions today understand TikTok? I think there are some people that definitely have never used the app, haven't even seen it working. And you can tell because one even one lawmaker even called it TikTok. 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 In the know or not, lawmakers believe the data concern is real. I want to say this to all the teenagers out there who think we're just old and out of touch and don't know what we're talking about, trying to take away your favorite app. You may not care that your data is being accessed now, but it will be one day when you do care about it. The insurrection all but started on Facebook, but TikTok is a problem. That's tonight's readout. Thank you so very much for joining us. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.